Uh, good morning, everyone. So Pastor Carl's going to continue on with the preaching of 2 Samuel, and today I'm going to read chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not his, this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your souls live, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king angers, rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebeh? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Okay. Well, we are carrying on, as Bonnie just said, into the... Here we go. That's precarious. In the book of Samuel. And we've been reading through both books of Samuel, as you've noticed, for the, oh boy, a better part of the year, I suppose, with the exception of summer. And the books of Samuel are quite simple in some ways. They're a narrative, they're a story, and they're a chronicle of Israel's experiment with monarchy. They're moving from a system of government that was kind of ad hoc, where judges are leading everywhere, every different areas. In fact, if you read the book of Judges, the 12 different judges don't rule at different times. They overlap, they're in different parts of the country. And we're moving from that into a systematic monarchy, like much of the world had. And specifically, we've been looking at the lives of Saul and Solomon, or Saul and David, the first two kings. And we come here now to the great fall of David. Up until now, we've seen lots of cracks in the armor, reason to be questioning David, reason to look and say, mm, is he on the level? But now there's no denying it. Now his fall comes. The innocent and naive faith of David up until this point goes away and never comes back. From now on, it'll be a hard fight to keep faith for David. And up until, there's so many ways we could approach this passage and this, this, um, this chapter. So no matter what I do, I'm going to leave some meat on the bone. There's going to be some stuff we won't be able to get to. But in keeping with what we've seen the last few weeks, we've seen with Mephibosheth in chapter 9, there was a question of how would this poor and weak crippled man deal with power, the power of the king? Would he submit? Then the question was, would these nations, the Ammonites and the Arameans, the Syrians, would they submit to the king? And now what we see is what I think is the anatomy of power. This chapter shows us the character of power. What is it? How does it affect us? How can we use it properly? How, why is it that we can't seem to use it properly? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these characters and look at how power works in the chapter. And we're going to see the weakness of power, the weakness of the powerful, and then the power of weakness. Okay? So the weakness of power, the weakness of the powerful, and the power of weakness. So let's begin with the weakness of power. There's a book that you've all probably had to read. Some of you may have liked it. Some of you may have hated it. Maybe you pretended to read it and watched the movie. It was called Lord of the Flies in high school. And in this, in this story, a group of children are shipwrecked on a deserted island, and these young boys from an all-boys school have to try to survive. And what it's meant to do, William Golding is trying to do, is he's saying, this is a microcosm. These kids, in all their innocence, have the opportunity to rebuild civilization. And let's see what happens if kids, not the adults who are corrupt, but what if kids have a chance to rebuild the world? What will it look like? And you find it's exactly the same. It's filled with murder and just, it's a mess, mess of a place. But by the end, they get rescued. And at the end, the main character, Ralph, bumps into uh, a military man who's, who's come on this expedition and has found them. And he bumps into them. And the moment Ralph bumps into this, this sergeant, he realizes immediately he has lost something. 
His life is never going to be the same. And here's what he says. Tears began to flow and sobs shook him. He gave himself up, that, uh, up to them now for the first time on the island. Great shuddering spasms of grief that seemed to wrench his whole body. His voice rose under the black smoke before the burning wreckage of the island. And infected by that emotion, the other little boys began to shake and sob too. And in the middle of them, with filthy body, matted hair, and unwiped nose, Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart. You see, Ralph had gone through so much that his innocence was gone. And we have all had this happen to us. Now, it may not have been as dramatic, hopefully not. Yet, we've all gotten to a point where we realized not everybody in the world likes us and wants to do good things to us. We have to teach our children to not talk to strangers. There's a point at which we lose innocence to an extent. And I think here what we're seeing is Bathsheba losing it because we've not met her yet. She just shows up for the first time. And she is immediately confronted with what happens when you are on the wrong side of power. Now, she's a woman growing up in a patriarchal society. There's no doubt Bathsheba understood that she didn't have all the power. But there's reason to believe that she probably felt pretty good she had it pretty good in that culture for a woman because of who she was married to. And you begin to see in her life here that she realizes the great weakness of human power. Human power must have a loser. You see, because the only way to have power is to have power over somebody or over something. The powerful are only powerful because they have someone to rule. And therefore, human power must have losers, must have people on the other side and they're not always downtrodden completely, but there's always a pecking order. And this is the great weakness of human power. And Bathsheba sees it starkly in two specific ways. First, she sees it in the loss of her humanity, and then in the loss of her security. So let me explain what, what I mean by that. So first, her humanity. Of all the women in the Old Testament, only Bathsheba is described as very beautiful. Other women are beautiful. Rebecca, Vashti, uh, Sarah, uh, Esther. But only... Bathsheba is meod, powerfully beautiful. This word meod is the word you could use for the great power of God. Like, she's pretty, pretty good looking, I assume. Very good looking. And she is on this rooftop, and David sees her. And David immediately, immediately you begin to see she loses her humanity, that she is not a person in the story. Because he says, who's that woman there? And from that point on, David will never use her name. In fact, no one uses her name except for the servant, and we're going to see why he uses it. Not only that, she never says a word. The only word she says is, I am pregnant, through a, through a messenger, and she never speaks again in the entire books of Samuel at all. She is referred to as a, per, as a thing more than a person. She is taken, she is sent, she is a pawn in this game that goes on. And we see it even more interestingly here. When the servant comes and David says, who is this woman? He says, she's a servant. She is the wife of Uriah and the daughter of Eliam, of Eliam, Eliam. And what does it mean? It means this woman has no identity of her own. The only reason she has an identity or exists is in relation to the men in her life. She is thing, not person. Quite common, unfortunately, in the ancient world, even in Israel. And yet, we see it here. And for the first time, I think, Bathsheba is a woman who would have been respected in her community, because of who her husband was, because of who her father was, and her grandfather we'll talk about later. So, for I think at this moment, she is realizing something. She is realizing that she's got no power. That here I am, I, I am only 
I can't resist the power of the king. I can't do anything. I, I'm, I, I have no, nothing in this culture. But it's not just in this loss of humanity, reduction to she's objectified, as many women are in the Old Testament. Um, but we see her loss of security as well. Because, you know, there's this painting from 1654 by Rembrandt of Bathsheba. And we could put it up on the screen, but only your head because it's a nude, and I didn't want to do that to you. Um, I don't know what kind of a climate we have in this room. So, but this picture. In this picture, Rembrandt paints her with a perplexed look on her face. And in her hand, which you can't see, is a piece of paper. And that piece of paper is presumably the message from David saying, come to me. And the reason he draws her perplexed, paints her this way, is because he realized what you and I should realize. She is put in an impossible position. If she accepts the call to David, she obeys the king, but dishonors her husband. If she disobeys the king, then she puts the husband at great risk, and herself as well. She literally has no opportunity. She's, it's an impossible situation for her. And this must have been very jarring for her. Because again, think of who her family is. Her husband is a mighty man. So he's, a, he's noble, he's respected, he has power. Her father, Liam, was also a mighty man of David, which is probably where she met Uriah. Then her, her grandfather, who you won't meet yet, but we'll talk about in a few weeks when we get there, is a guy named Ahithophel, who is David's chief advisor, who later on ends up telling Absalom, you know what you should do? Go sleep with your father's concubines on the roof. Interesting, is it? The grandfather gives Absalom that suggestion as if he's saying, I'm going to get him back for what he did to my daughter on the roof, my granddaughter. So she's got this powerful family. She would have walked through marketplaces and been, been respected. People would have bowed. They would have sought favor of this woman. And now, the moment a messenger shows up at her door, her, her illusion of security is gone. It doesn't matter who her family is. It doesn't matter who she is. It doesn't matter her reputation. It doesn't matter her money, her cleverness. And for all of us, it doesn't matter how mindful you are with your yoga or how, uh, how much of a can-do attitude you have. You are powerless. The question is only which power is it going to be that's going to show you that. And she's forced to admit at this moment, well, what can I do? What can I do? Nothing. And then, so, when this happens, we're forced to ask this question. Why? Why does David do this? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there in a second. I was almost jumping ahead, but I won't. So when the messengers come and shatter this illusion for Bathsheba, we begin to realize that she knows that part of the loss of innocence is this. Even though you are not the author of sin, that doesn't mean you're immune from the effects of sin. My, I remember my kids were having a sock fight. Kids do that all the time. You know, you make them roll up socks because there's so many children. And then they, they, to have fun, they throw socks at each other. And one of my sons wasn't playing. He wasn't interested in being involved, but he got hit in the face with the sock anyway. It doesn't matter if you're not playing the game. It's a broken world. You have no security from the sock war. And Bathsheba realizes, I think, that this is the weakness of power. Power has to have a loser when we wield it. And that's the weakness of it. There's always going to be a Bathsheba somewhere in the world. So that's the weakness of power. But then we begin to see something even more striking, I think, which is the weakness of the powerful. There's a very famous quote you've all heard by a guy named Lord Acton, who was a 19th century British politician and historian. And he says very famously, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, we've all heard that. The question is, is it true? Well, not really, but sort of. 
In the Harvard Business Review, there was this uh, article in 2016, and it talked about this. It tried to determine with tests, is it true that power corrupts people? And what they found was, no, it's not power that corrupts people. People are already corrupt. The power simply gives them a reason for that power, for that, the fertile soil in which that, that corruption can get bigger and influence more people. It doesn't matter if you're a country pastor with six people at your church or you're a mega church pastor, you're just as equal and just as likely to be a tyrant because you're the problem, not the power. The power exposes it. And one of the things they showed, it's funny, these, these, these tests they did to prove this point or to try to prove the point was they got people in groups of three. And they brought the three people in and they put them into a room. And they said, you three are responsible for writing this document. You're going to collaborate on a written document. But, and they chose one person. They said, you are the leader. One of the three, you're the leader, randomly. Then they did something interesting. You should, if you're in the test, by the way, everything is intentional. They're trying to trick you. And that's what they do. They put them in the room. And then they brought in a, a, a plate with four cookies on it. And in every single group, all three people in the groups grabbed a cookie each, which left one cookie on the plate. Who will grab the cookie, the last cookie? In every single group, the leader grabbed the cookie. In every single one, the leader felt entitled. Not only did they grab the cookie, but the, but the researchers say they were more likely to eat with their mouths open and leave crumbs all over themselves. Now, <laughs> now I'm watching all the time. But what's the reason behind it? Because it was random, you can't say those people were predisposed to it. It doesn't matter who it is. The moment you give them power, it gives them a sense of entitlement. Not because of the power, but because you're broken. You're broken inside. And they, they had many other st studies. One was they gave people a, a, a test of driving to see who would stop for pedestrians. Every single person who drove a car that was a cheap piece of junk stopped for the pedestrian, 100%. The people in the luxury cars, only 54% stopped. Interesting. Another one was that they checked CEOs. CEOs of companies were more likely to give themselves big bonuses, even if they knew it would damage the value of the company, compared to their underlings, who were willing to say, no, it'll hurt the company if I take the money. Isn't it interesting? So the problem isn't so much the power. The problem is we are a mess, which isn't a, a new thing if you're a Christian, because the Bible has been saying forever, that we are the problem, that the weakness of the powerful is sin, corruption. Uh, Augustine was probably the, well, not probably, he was the first one to use this great Latin term called homo incurvatus inse. And what it means is man is turned inward on himself, curved, bent inward on himself. Martin Luther would later take it and talk a lot about it and expound on this idea in his lectures on Romans, the book of Romans. Here's what Luther says about our nature. Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them as is plain in the works righteous and hypocrites, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Luther is pointing out exactly the problem of the powerful. We are all broken. We're all bent inward on ourselves, that we can't seem to take our eyes off of our own well-being. And this isn't a surprise, not only because it's in the Bible, but it shouldn't be a surprise to Israel or even Bathsheba or David or any of them. In 1 Samuel 8, when we preached on this months ago, Samuel tried to warn Israel. They asked for a king, remember? And he said, 
okay, you'll have a king, but eventually the power you give him to rule in goodness and in justice will get turned inward. And he's eventually going to start to take. If you remember, he uses the word laka, which means take, six times in a couple of verses. And he says, he's going, your, this king will take your sons, your daughters, your lands, your possessions, your servants, and your livestock. So eventually, all of this power will get used to satisfy the personal whim because that's what humans do. This is the weakness of the powerful. We're broken. And you see it in this passage in two key ways as well with David. The sin comes through in his life when you look at what he ignores and what he pays attention to. The first thing that he ignores is who Bathsheba is. So he asks the servant, tell, you know, to, who is this woman? And the servant responds, you'll notice, with a rhetorical question. He doesn't say it's Bathsheba. He instead says, isn't this Bathsheba? Son or daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah, the Hittite? A rhetorical question is what he's basically saying is, you know who that is. You know who Uriah is. You know who Eliam are. You know who, who Ahithophel is. You know this woman. So it's clearly, he's tr the servant is subtly trying to warn David. You know who that is, right? And, it, and of course, what does David do? Immediately he says, I'll take her. The very next words out of his mouth are, so David sent messages and messengers and took her. But it's even further. When this, when this servant says uh, who she is, he actually breaks all custom. He does something very unique in the ancient world. When a woman gets married in ancient Israel, she stops being the daughter of Eliam, and she starts being the wife of Uriah. It would be redundant. It would be a waste of time. It's too much information. It's like giving somebody their waist size when you introduce them. You wouldn't tell them who her father is if she's got a husband. So when the servant says something this conspicuous, she is the daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah, he is saying, she's not yours, David. Are you, let's be clear, David. This, belong, this woman doesn't belong to you. She's not yours. It's illegitimate what you're trying to do. So he's cleverly trying to do this. But what does David do? I don't care. Send her. Bring her. In fact, it says, send, take. It's harsh in the Hebrew. He has no, this is a very animalistic response from David. He's showing his worst side here. So he ignores his responsibility to others. And it gets even worse, right? Because then he brings Joab into it too. He then, when, when, uh, he get, when uh, Uriah proves uncorruptible, incorruptible, which I'll talk about in a minute, he then says, Joab, you have to come in and help me cover this up. You have to cover this up with me. And then he brings other Israelites into it because other people die, other soldiers die. And then he brings the nation into it because this is a problem. When you upset a key family in, the, in this ancient world, it's the breeding ground for coups and revolutions. So David in this moment abuses Uriah. Oh no, first he abuses Esther. Bathsheba. He abuses Bathsheba. He dishonors Uriah. He involves Joab. He sacrifices soldiers and he risks the nation. All for what? And that we're going to get to in a minute as to why. Because there's a key reason. And we're going to talk more next week when we talk about him and Nathan. And, and we'll see more details here. But if that's what he's ignoring, who she is and who the country needs him to be and so on, well, what does he pay attention to? You'll notice that David is really good at being king. He uses the language of a king. One of the prerogatives of, of royalty and people with power is they can send other people to do things. And the word send shows up, I don't even know, a dozen times maybe in this chapter. For instance, let's look at through the story. First, it starts with him sending Joab, it's the word send, to Rabbah. Now, remember last week, the Ammonites fought with David, and when Joab beat, the, beat them, the Ammonites fled back into their city. And then Joab withdrew and said, I'm not going to finish the fight because it's getting messy, it's kind of winter, 
And now that it's spring, he goes and he lays siege to the city to finish the work he didn't finish before. So, so David sends him out to do that. Then he sends a servant to go get Bathsheba, to speak, or to tell him who Bathsheba is. He then sends a servant to take Bathsheba. He then sends word, same word in Hebrew every time, to Joab to, to send, and then send me Uriah the Hittite. Send again. Then when Uriah proves to be incorruptible, and we'll, like I said, we'll get there, he then sends to Joab of what he has to do. But of course, he sends this murder note with Uriah, who has to carry his own death sentence, to Joab. And then once the deed is done, he then sends to Bathsheba to come back to him. And what you're seeing is he is very, pays a great deal of attention to his cover-up, but not much attention to the people. And this is the corruption of the human heart again. And we're forced to ask ourselves why. In fact, David is going to be asked this question by God in the next chapter, which we'll talk about. Why do it? He has a harem. He's king. We see this with celebrities constantly, don't we? And not even celebrities, it's everybody, men, predominantly, we're rotten people. Why? Why does he do it? What's the logic? And the answer comes through a very pithy statement, I think, by a guy named Oscar Wilde. Yeah, I don't condone his lifestyle, but I do like his writing. And he says very cleverly, everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. I think he's got it right here. Because taking Bathsheba from a mighty man is David saying, I see her, I want her. In fact, I'm not going to do this today because we don't have time, but in your life, your community groups do this. Pay attention to the similarities between when he sees Bathsheba and when Eve sees the fruit. It's very similar that they see something and they must have it because it looks good to them. And he can't get it out. So an expression is what I see, I want. And if I can take it from a mighty man, all the better. Because David's getting older. What, what man who's getting older doesn't want to stick it to a younger man? Is it possible this is just about power? I want it. It's mine. I'm the king. Look what I've done. I'm going to take it. And this David is in all of us. We're all turned inwards so badly that we become this person. None of us can, are, are free from it. We may not do the same things exactly David has done, but we're all guilty. Now, if that's the case, what is the power then? Where is the, the hope here? And there is power in weakness, and it comes to us in Uriah. See, Uriah is the only thing in the story that can't be controlled. Bathsheba has one moment of showing some power, and that's only because she has been victimized. She becomes pregnant. And when she sends, same Hebrew word, word to David and says, I am pregnant, it's her one moment of power. I've been victimized, but now I'm going to stick it to him. Now he can't get out of it. He, he's going to be found out. But even that David can control. I'll just do away with Uriah. So even then, poor Bathsheba finds she can be controlled. But Uriah can't be controlled. And you see it in the interaction between David and, and Uriah. Again, look at the wording. It's, do this when you're reading the Bible. Look for repeated words. And the word go down happens repeatedly in this part of the passage. David says, go down and wash your feet. Now, washing your feet, feet is a euphemism for genitalia in the Bible, right? So in earlier in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, um, Saul goes into the washroom, uh, into the cave to go to the washroom, and it says he went to cover his feet. Sorry, the graphic. But in the book of Ruth, when Ruth goes and she uncovers the feet of Joab, there's something here. There's a very, it's a euphemism in Hebrew for sec the sexual act and intimacy. So he's telling Joab, go down. You've had a good time. You've, you've worked really hard. You're a great soldier. Now go and enjoy yourself and have some rest with your wife. But 
What does Uriah say? Uriah says, it's, but it says, he says, go down and wash your feet. The very next words are, but Uriah slept at the gate. He won't go. He won't obey. Then David hears about it. And he says, why did you not go down? And Uriah says, why should I be in comfort? My kinsmen and my God are in discomfort. Why would I take it? Even if it's rightfully mine. He had every right to go home and enjoy himself. It's his wife. It's his family. He, couldn't, he refused to take what was legitimately his, which is a smack in the face of David who is taking what is illegitimately not his, right? What's not his. And he refuses to go. He then, David decides, well, I can't corrupt him this way, so I'll just get him drunk. Maybe I can convince him to not be himself by getting him loaded. But even getting, even a drunk Uriah is more noble than a, no, a sober David because even drunk, he doesn't go down. He stays at the gate. And so in Uriah, you're seeing something. You're seeing a guy who realizes that power isn't meant to dominate other people and to get your way, but is something to be spent for the honor of other people. And we know he sees this very clearly. And because he sees this, because he sees this, he's incorruptible. Because David can offer him nothing, right? There's nothing David can offer him that will make him contradict his conscience and his devotion to his, his, his Lord and, and God. He won't do it. So the question we need to ask is in this weakness, the weakness, by the way, of his power is saying he has the right to take it, but he doesn't. He has the right to exert his authority in the situation, to take his wife, to do what he wants. It's his, it's his family. But he refuses it. And by being weak to that, he shows greater power. David can't control him, like trying to climb a piece of drywall. There's nothing to get your fingers into. If a man is incorruptible, if there's nothing that he wants that you can give him, what do you do with that man? And this is the question we need to ask. How do we become the sword of a people? And the answer is in Psalm 73, which I wish was a David psalm, because maybe we wouldn't have this chapter, but it's not. It's a psalm of Asaph. 73, verses 25 to 26 say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, why did the temptation of Jesus fail in Matthew and in Luke? It failed because there was nothing that Christ wanted or needed. You can't offer him fame. What do you offer, what do you offer to the king of the universe? Fame? What fame? There's no fame, no money. There's nothing that could possibly corrupt Jesus because there's nothing he wanted. And Jesus, even on the, think about it, even on the cross, he's on the cross when you and I, at the very least, even if we made it that far without falling, which we wouldn't have, but let's imagine we did. Surely on the cross, I would want and need comfort and relief from pain. But even on the cross, Christ says, I don't want comfort and pain, or comfort and relief from pain. Because why? Because his eyes were on something other than himself. Because he's looking at God and you. He knows if he takes relief from pain off the cross, then yes, he'll may live a longer life. Maybe he'll, have, he'll certainly have less pain at the moment, but he'll lose the glory of his father. He won't be able to honor his father by doing what he was sent to do. And if worst of all, maybe not, no, not worst of all. Forget I said that's not worst of all because there's nothing worse than dishonoring God. But also he would have lost you. He would have lost you. You were the thing that kept him up there. His honor, he wants to honor and lift up his father and show how great his father is. And then there's you. He stayed up there because he knew that if he came down, he'd lose you. And his eyes were not on himself because if they were, he would have come down. He could have, but he didn't. And this idea is the only relationship to power you and I can have that won't ruin us. 
Christians ought to be people who lay down their power for the sake of others continually. And this might be more controversial today, nowadays. We have to be slower to resist power. We think for some reason that we have to defend ourselves all the time. That every time the government makes a move, we must defend and harden and dig our heels in. If you look at the cross, the more Christ is pushed, the more his rights are robbed of him, the softer he gets. To the point of when he's on the cross, he says, forgive them. He doesn't stick up for his rights. Now, there's a time to do that. But we're far too quick, I think, to do it. And this, is, and this is what the problem is. Any relationship to power that isn't the gospel that says, I lay down my power for the sake of someone else, any other relationship to it will leave you broken. And this is why. Let's imagine you have power and you want to use it to make yourself, give yourself a good reputation, get wealthy, have a good, secure family. Well, whatever that goal is, good family, reputation, money, retirement, whatever it is, pick something, you will become a tyrant in trying to get it. You will use your power to get it to the point of ruining other people if necessary. And even if your, your end goal is a good thing, we have lots of good people in the world, lots of non-Christians who are philanthropists and work hard to relieve the suffering of people. But if your primary goal and your focus is to relieve their suffering and not to honor God, you will become a tyrant to somebody because you will say, you know what, the poor have nothing, so I'm going to ruin the rich people if I have to. We'll chop them down. This is communism, right? The poor people, the proletariat need something. Let's chop down the people with the resources. Or if the government we don't like, let's chop them down. And all of a sudden, you see what you've done? You become a tyrant to half the world. You can't avoid becoming a tyrant unless you have the gospel, unless you realize that you don't need to become a tyrant. You don't need to secure your future. Christ will do that. Doesn't mean you're not shrewd. I've talked about that too. But it's not our primary goal. The, my power, whatever you have, if you're a barista at a coffee shop, a bricklayer, a pastor, what doesn't matter what you are, you have a degree of power. Even if you're only, and I'm not saying only in air quotes because I'm not saying it's a reduced role, even if you're only a stay-at-home mom, you have power over children. And if you use that power for anything but to honor God, you're going to be a tyrant to those kids. You're going to want to make them behave perfectly in church so that your reputation looks good as a parent. You're going to want to have them have a great career so you can boast about how you raised them well. And you'll become a tyrant, a stench to your own children if you're not careful. The only relationship we can have is this gospel one that says, Christ laid down his comfort so that I could have eternity with him. Therefore, where can I give up my power to, have, to help other people find him? It's the only relationship we can possibly have. And if you do that, you become impervious to bribes. No one can tempt you with jobs, promotions, notches on the bedpost. None of it will be able to bribe you because you think, what does this world have that I need? Nothing. There's nothing I need. So then you're free to love it because you're not going to be serving it to get something for yourself. When, the, when you realize the world has nothing you need, you can then love the world. Until then, you'll never love it. You'll just love yourself. That's what the gospel's saying. That's what Christ came to die for. Otherwise, you could do it yourself. But praise God he came. Because he did, we can use the little power we have to bring light to this region. Let's pray.